Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Todd A., Craig S., and Nick W. Returning to the program today is Brian Lax. Brian is the Partner and Portfolio Manager at Old West Investment Management, a California-based hedge fund that participates in many areas of the market, including natural resources. You can learn more about Old West Investment Management via its website, oldwestim.com. Brian, it's a pleasure. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Well, Brian, by now I would have expected you to have packed up the horses and the cows and redomiciled somewhere in the Great Basin, say Salt Lake or something like that. Uh, but how are things at the Old West Group? Oh, we're doing well. You know, I think um, we talk about it every time, but uh, there are pros and cons to living here. We try to focus on the pros. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's positive and stay optimistic. Well, how's things going? And maybe give us your thoughts to kick things off here on market conditions, both broad and maybe over in the natural resource sector. What things do you like? Anything have your attention, both negative and positive? Yeah, well, I guess first we're having a great year, which is nice. You know, we had a really strong year last year, so it's, it's always good to follow it up. You know, it's funny. People say, how are the markets doing? Our natural response is always, which market? I think, um, you know, sometimes there can be different conditions in, in different places. I guess if you're asking, the overall market, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't even really looked today. What's it? Probably up 50 bips, I guess. If I have, if I'd have to guess, I mean, it seems like that's either the, the the state of it or maybe you know down two percent and CNBC's running their markets in turmoil, Chiron. But no, in general, I, I think it seems like markets are going well. I mean, the real question for us is when does the Fed take their thumb off the scale? I think that's the big question. It's tough when you're trained in fundamental analysis and you get into an environment where all that really matters is you know, what a single guy says every few weeks, you know, everyone gathers around the TV to, 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 you know, watch him read the crop report. But for us, I think we've kind of found a little niche where, uh, you know, we're able to hide out in some areas that have pretty strong fundamentals. And, you know, as long as the general market isn't um, too extreme one way or the other, I, I think we should do fine. And, and that's been, been proven out um, the last few years. You know, I, I think going back a few years before that, people had questions because of our strategy and because we were in some of these areas that, oh, you know, you're only going to do well when the market crashes or, you, you know, you can never compete with some of the, the high flying stuff, the tank stocks, you know, whatnot, the, the crazy valued tech stocks. But I think last year was a good, was a good proof of that. The market did well and, and we did very well um, in, in excess of that. And, and this year seems to be the same. So I think really it just lends credence to the view that, some of these areas that we've been in that we've been patient about are, are finally starting to bear fruit and um, doing well, even uh, alongside a market that's also doing well. Yeah, it seems that uh, certainly some focus in other areas of the market that uh, have been unloved for a number of years and performance has been good the last two years uh, over here as well. And I think for a lot of people on this area who continue to focus energy and natural resource sectors, base metals, even some precious metals uh, on a select basis uh, still have done well. Anything particular that's catching your mind here as far as just attention for capital, other places maybe that you're rotating towards in terms of opportunities in oil, as you know, and coal has some opportunities and things even like potash and of course, you know, there's uranium and base metals, et cetera. Anything in particular that's standing out to you here that hasn't gotten much love yet, or is it kind of everything is getting love? Well, you know, I guess some of the things that have been very unloved are, are starting to be loved. I mean, it, it wasn't too long ago, you maybe a year, year and a half ago, we had negative oil prices. So now to see an energy shock, you know, 18 months later is, is, is kind of ironic. Um, so that's, that's certainly getting more love than it, than it had. Uh, uranium, I mean, you know, I, I don't remember the last time we talked, maybe a couple of years ago, um, that certainly hadn't been loved for, for a while, um, you know, the first year or two that we, we started the fund, but now it certainly seems to be getting a, a lot of love. Probably the one I think that people are not so happy about, but maybe the fundamentals don't justify that is, are the, are the precious metals, um, gold and, and silver. We're not 2000 like we were a year ago, but um, a lot of these companies still make really good money at wherever we are today, 1750-ish. So 
it's funny to see how negative the sentiment has become. But, you know, for us, that's always a, a time to start looking at things and, and asking, is, uh, is, it, is it overdone? Are there values here? And we still have a pretty big position in, in precious metals. We've had it for quite some time. And, you know, I, I think anytime people get um, really negative on something and that's usually a time to think, hey, should, should we be adding here? You know, especially since some of the other parts of our portfolio have, have really been running in a, in, in a strong way. And so your, your weightings start to get a little bit um, uh, skewed more towards relatively performing better. And with that in mind, we've, we've definitely been kicking the tires on a, on a few more uh, precious metals heads. Yeah, not a bad place to be looking right now in select gold and silver stocks uh, specifically at this point. Um, there's a number of stuff on the safer side in the mid-tier space that makes a lot of sense on both. Actually, some fantastic prices over the last few months on some of those equities. So Equinox Gold, for example, I think is a perfect example of, of a place to uh, to be adding even at current prices and even where the prices were a few months ago. Um, amongst many others, which I'm not doing it justice by mentioning one, but it's certainly a big position for us. You know, it'll be interesting to see how things turn on that side of things. And then, of course, you know, the base metals in a good direction. So, yeah, lots of opportunities, unfortunately, just not enough capital to go after some of these. And of course, you know, you're right. Uranium skewed the portfolios a bit as well recently. So maybe let's talk about uranium for a moment. Any particular comments on recent market events over the last few months? I know, back to reference, you and I haven't spoke since December 2019 for reference for the audience. But uh, any thoughts on the uranium sector here? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's been pretty quiet. I haven't really seen any news lately. Um, no, actually, we've we've seen a ton of news, and it, it's been a huge. Um, it's been a huge change. Uh, if, if going back to when we talked, I guess, with 2019. You know, the fundamental setup just continues to get stronger every day. I think the difference these days is that people are paying attention to it. I mean, just today I, I walked into the office and our CIO was, was showing me that, uh, that that uranium story in the Wall Street Journal was you know, front page of the of the middle section there and kind of pretty prominently placed. You know, used to go if you go back a couple of years, you used to have to dig into obscure you know industry rags to find any sort of any sort of news there. The fact that you're seeing it in all these more mainstream outlets, I think is a, is a really big change. You know, a lot of them are still pointing to or ascribing it to uh, day traders or wall street bets or Reddit or all that stuff. I think the quality of, of the reporting is getting better in terms of them needing to see that there's actually some fundamental stuff driving this market and it's happening slowly, but surely. But yeah, you know, uranium is kind of one of those exotic ideas that people like to point to as, as having the potential to really you know, catch a catch a mania. We've talked about it in some of our in some of our past interviews. I mean, that's not the that's not the primary reason to be involved, but it obviously adds some fuel to the fire when people start realizing how strong the fundamental setup is. You know, obviously the big news this year has been the Sprott Fund and what they've done. Uh, it just seems like it's only getting warmed up as well. I mean, they don't even have the, their New York listing going. It seems like it's in motion now, but um, man, they, they've really come out with a bang there, uh, spending whatever that was, five, six hundred million bucks in the, in the first month, month and a half. So we're happy to see that. Obviously, you've seen the, the spot price go up from low 30s to you know, mid 40s, got above 50. The equities have, have run in, in tandem with it, and really, it the main thing that we like to see is that there's just more interest in the space. I mean, we've always maintained that the fundamentals were never the problem here. The problem was that no one cared. No one was looking at it. I mean, you had such a long downturn for so long that most of the investment community had just abandoned the sector. Um, and so when things started perking back up, there just wasn't that natural level of interest. And so many of the companies have either gone away or were so washed out. There just wasn't a lot of sector coverage in the financial community. So it was sort of a perfect storm, but that was a great time to be buying equities in hindsight, which is what we were doing for, for a couple of years, you know, building positions in a lot of these names. Um, you know, now it's nice to see uh, that strategy paying off. You know, it, it, it was a long year or two trying to tell our investors, hey, look, this is happening. Here's the setup. Just be patient. You know, it's going down. You know, we're, we're building positions in these things while no one cares about it uh, and just let it turn the corner and you'll see what happens, I, I think that strategy has, has, has really paid off in a big way. And it looks like it's just getting going. I mean, I know the stocks have run a bunch uh, in the last year, year and a half, but spot price is still, or uranium price is still you know, sub 50. I mean, that's, it, it, we think it has to go a lot higher just to, to balance the market. And so 
I think we're we're really only just getting started. Lots of key events have yet to take place and early stage here. I, I know that a lot of folks think that that's not the case and it's too easy to flood this market. I firmly disagree with that. And I think that these supplemental vehicles like Yellow Cake and of course now Sprott coming into the market and re-energizing and weaponizing uh, Uranium Participation Corp. I think is useful, but then also, I you know, this this nice extra piece of news with uh, Kazataprom coming out with another vehicle, hopefully to be listed, uh, which should be nice if it was listed somewhere else, Singapore, Hong Kong, elsewhere. Uh, it would be nice to see something pop up on the ASX as well, Brian, because I think that having vehicles like this listed around the major global exchanges makes a lot of sense from a standpoint that uh, it kind of takes any thunder out of the SEC's review of a uh, New York listing for SPUT. So, you know, I think it's good to see these various vehicles out there, and you know, it's it's good to see that investors have these options. Obviously, the way that the the Sprott vehicle set up far superior to Yellow Cake at this point. Not a lot of capital raises yet that I'm seeing in in the sector equities. Not a lot of uh, news items yet. Not a lot on M&A yet either. So it's uh, I think everybody is still in kind of shock mode a little bit. Um, maybe there's some strategizing going on, but uh, yeah, lots of interesting circumstances here. Yeah, I guess it's somewhat surprising that you haven't seen more juniors hitting the bid and dumping a bunch of equity onto the market. I mean, that's, that's been their MO for, for the longest amount of time, and, and they were doing it at a lot lower price level. So uh, you would expect to see some of that. I mean, you've seen the, you know smattering here and there, but um, in general, who knows? Maybe they finally said, you know, this thing's got a long way to go, and maybe they're holding off for better prices. But um, in, in general, I, I think that, yeah, all, all the news is really constructed. That Kazakh fund, it looks like they're they're targeting more of the kind of Asian market, Australasian market with that. So Yellow Cake's got the Europe and Sprott, obviously North America. I, I agree with you. I think the the, the ATM uh, setup for Sprott makes it just far superior the way they can go in and out of the market every day. You know, I heard some people complaining about Yellow Cake. I think it was trading a pretty big premium, and, and they haven't really done much. But in general, I think just the more we see buying from the financial community does a few things. One, it puts price discovery into the market. And two, it gives utilities a little bit more incentive to go out and start taking care of their own needs. The talk was always, oh, you know, how do you go sign a contract for 50 when spots at 25? Um, you know, we're not, we're not really trying to make a call here. But if you get the, the markets at 50, well, it's much easier to start signing contracts and you know, the utilities are, are pretty decently covered in the next few years, but they still got to come to the market for the, the following years and, and the 10 years after or through the 10 years after. So I think you've, you've, you've heard uh, talk that the, these contracting discussions have happened. You know, Cameco has, has, has done quite a bit of contracting. Um, you're starting to see some RFDs out there. So, you know, the wheels are in motion. They, they turn slowly, but it, it is very constructive. And in the meantime, having all these funds out there snapping up pounds and, and trying to prove how, how liquid the spot market is, I think, is, a, is just a positive. Yeah, I think spots uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 million pounds volume so far year to date and long term contracting's uh, uh, for the year, year to date, 53 million. So, yeah, it's good to see that part of it, too. And with prices as things stand, with you have these willing buyers in the market like you know, Sprite, you know, you don't have to necessarily, I guess you could use broker networks if you wanted to, to help pass it around, I guess. But some of the small ISR producers, you see companies in Australia that have 700 million market cap on an ISR project that might need to raise, you know, 50 million for their stage one project. Not a lot of speed on that yet. Um, ISR producers in the U.S., six months, eight months, 12 months restart times, uh, CapEx 15, 20 million if the costs are what they say they are, then why not start clipping some pounds if you can pump out, you know, not much of anything for this market, 50 to 80,000 pounds a month, Brian, take some cash flow here. It'd be interesting to see what the strategy is here, because I know there's some strategizing going on behind the scenes, but uh, some of these small ISR quick restart producers uh, have some good opportunity if their costs are what they state that they are which I'm suspicious that they're not fully that way and that inflation is also going to help bring those costs up. But it's going to be interesting to see who's swimming naked when the tide comes out on this one, because that to me is an interesting standpoint where you have companies that are obviously in the money here and will they make a move? And if they don't make a move, you have to question their intentions. 
Yeah, well, also, I think you said it perfectly. If the costs are what they say they are, uh, that, that, that remains to be seen. We'll, we'll see if, if some of these guys start to ramp up. Um, you know, we really like this Adam Prom here because they already have the production and, you know, they can ramp it up if, if they want. Um, you know, obviously, they've, they've said that they were going to keep it pretty flat here through 2023. But, you know, those, those decisions to start ramping in terms of CapEx and, and production outlook i mean probably happen sometime around middle of next year for for 24 so in that case you you are looking for companies that do have existing production you know the interesting thing for some of the other juniors you know with some of these isr projects is you know it it does take capital it does take time to ramp up even though they can do it relatively more quickly than than a hard rock mine but you have to distinguish between what's happening in spot and what they can actually capture uh in terms of in terms of term contracting, you know, I, I think going back a few years, we were never really that interested in the spot vehicles just because one, the the uranium equities themselves were were so bombed out. I'm talking, you know, 2018, 2019, that you know, even though spot was whatever it was, 20, 25 bucks, if you had a view that it was going to go to 50 or 75, um, you know, the return that you'd get from owning spot was going to be dwarfed by by the return on on the equities themselves. You know, that changed a little bit when, one, the stocks have run over the last 18 months, uh, putting it a little bit more on parity since you're starting to price in a little bit higher higher number. But two, because now with this Sprott vehicle in there, it, there's a possibility that the spot price runs so much, just you get squeezed by you know, a market that can't handle all their buying, that really uh, you see it run, but the, the term price doesn't necessarily keep up. You could have some backwardation for a while. Um, and what, the, what in that situation, you actually would want to own the spot vehicle because you're going to capture that rise, whereas the equities, which are supposedly, you know, should be discounting mechanisms for, you know, what they earn over the, the life of their mine, may not, you know, m- might call the bluff and say, well, this is just a temporary spike. And so that, you know, the equities might only price in 80 long term or whatever to pick your number. And so that was a little shift that we had. Uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit in our in our letter earlier this year was you know going back two years our view on on these on these spot vehicles was you know if if you're right about uranium you're going to get paid more in the miners and if if you're wrong about uranium or you don't like thesis well you probably don't want to own anything and so they kind of sat in this middle ground you know we thought maybe we'll own some as a cash substitute as we're looking where we want to deploy it but in general you know the the place to be was in the miners And and i think the return that you've seen over the last a uh, year or two uh, really bears that out. But now you've gotten a situation where, yeah, um, who knows where this buying power is going to take the quote unquote spot price. Um, I mean, they could uh, obviously they've overwhelmed it in the last six to eight weeks. Uh, you've seen it move pr- pretty quickly. The real question is, do the equities continue? If, 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 it, if it continues to go up, let's say it goes to you know, 60, 80, 100, I don't know, higher. Um, do the equities at some point start to say, well, wait a minute now. I mean, you know, we have a 10 year mine life or a 15 year mine life. Are we going to, if, if spot squeezes the 150, are, should we really be uh, you know, banking that in that we're going to get 150 every year for the next 10 years? Um, that dynamic is something we're, we're watching for because we actually think, no, in some cases you may see, you may see the returns keep going to that spot vehicle, but the the actual miners themselves might might hit sort of a diminishing return there, um, as essentially calling the bluff and saying that this that whatever spike is there is, is going to be short lived. And so maybe there's a little bit of that with the mentality of some of these junior ISR guys in knowing that yeah, the spot price is running here, but I mean if we're going to go raise a bunch of money and we're going to actually do this, you know, are we going to be able to get these types of of prices because Look, um, you know the utilities—they're—they're uh, they're slow to, to contract. There, you know, the, the guys that are going to get the big contracts are obviously the, the big—you know—companies. Cameco's out there doing it because Adam Prom. You got to think: Are these little companies going to be able to get the levels they need? And there's a little bit of a game of chicken, which is, do they want to sell so soon? Yeah, to your point, they do get a little bit of cash flow in the door, but do they really want to give up any potential upside right now? I mean, you've seen Cameco catch a lot of flack in the last few months. Uh, because of the, the how conservatively they're they're structured in their contracts, people saying they're you know they got a fair market mentality or they're giving up all their upside. Um, there might be a little bit of that, even in the juniors saying, you know, why are we going to sell our ISR pounds at 50? You know, we, we lied in our 
said we could produce it at 30, but really it's probably 40 or 45. And so, you know, yeah, we might make a few bucks, but you know, maybe we, maybe we want to wait and, and see how far this thing really goes. Yeah, I think there's a component of that. I mean, obviously, the, the size we're talking about, this is small quantity, uh, insignificant, even if you add some of them together in the U.S., still insignificant. And the fact that it's going to take them six months here to get out and maybe actually going, will they get the nameplate? Probably not. From there, if it's pumping out 90,000 pounds you know, a month, if you're lucky, over time, yeah, of course, you build a capture different price points and maybe help out pipeline development projects with stacking a little bit of cash flow back there as well. You know, the bigger guys, you don't have that type of optionality. You can't dump large quantities on the spot market. And it will be tried probably at much higher prices, as you state. But the term contracts are so much more meaningful and important to those larger producers. Yeah, interesting dynamic, Brian. I mean, an air gap uh, spot price at, uh, you know, $90 versus uh, a long-term contract being entered into at $65. There, That air gap difference, how will the equities respond, as you say, when there's a spike? all yet to be seen. And it's going to be interesting to see what individual strategies come out as well. And then, of course, uh, actually seeing what these numbers are being reported once you know production actually gets there, uh, the inflation on CapExes on these billion-dollar projects, you know what that looks like. And I think we had a very good indicator of that looking over at copper development projects that are a billion-plus, two billion-plus. You can tack on 25 to 30 percent on that CapEx, and that's uh, an understatement. I think that uh, people are going to be surprised to the upside on what some of these capexes are actually going to come out to be. Yeah, well, I, there's a couple parts to that question. You know, I think on the capex, everyone likes to run their models of these of these projects and, and play with the price and say, oh my gosh, look at how much upside there is. Uh, if, you're, if you're being honest with yourself, you probably should be running some sensitivities on the capex too, because that's blowing out um, in a lot of places. You know, you, you I did that interview with, uh, who was it, Jose Maria a few weeks ago. That's a three billion dollar bill, and they're talking about you know ten percent overrun at least. Uh, man, <laughs> it gets pretty big pretty quick when you have a tiny market cap in comparison to some of these larger projects. You know, for the smaller uranium guys, in hindsight, it looks like some of the best decisions they made were to go out and buy some physical. <laughs> as as crazy as it sounded, and, and, and you know they they caught some criticism for it uh, when they were doing it, but you know even even today at whatever whatever spot that I don't know mid forties. For some of them, guys, if they're honest with their their full all-in costs, maybe they should still be buying more physical, um, especially if they're able to, you know, that they can turn around and sell faster than they can wrap up their ISR, obviously. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I still think it's it's probably more difficult for uh, a junior company to get some contracts signed, uh, especially one that, that's never produced before. Maybe some of the guys that have historical production might have an easier go at it, but um it's just it's just difficult right if you're a utility why do i want to go and you know get some guys like you say ninety thousand pounds a month or whatever um uh you know and maybe they'll produce it maybe they won't i don't know who are these guys what's their history i, I think there's a lot of that going on when i can just go you know lock up bulky pounds somewhere else as long as i'm willing to pay a little bit more we, we'll see I, I think that it goes to kind of the surprise of why haven't the juniors come out and, and raised a bunch of money? Yeah, that's something you'd probably have to see happen first. I don't know, maybe simultaneous, but you know, if they're if they're really going to develop these things, they're going to need the money to do it. Um, where are they going to Where are they going to get that? You'd, you'd think that if they were serious about doing it now, I mean, obviously there, there's some lead time. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit quicker, but there's still some lead time, so they got to go do that. Um, we haven't quite seen it yet, but uh, you know, there's a lot of that the consolidation potential, you know, should there, we don't really own a lot of the, a lot of the U S cause it kind of falls in that middle ground of they're not very large deposits. They're not really that high grade. Yeah. You can turn them on quick. Um, I guess is, is a, is a, is a pro there, but um, in general, I mean, we either go to some of the, we like the really high grade stuff um, that's chunky, or we like some of the, the current production that's low cost. Uh, you know, and a lot of the other development stuff that's, that's higher cost is, uh, you know, maybe stuff in Africa where you've got a similar short lead time, but it's actually got a little bit more scale. Um, and so, you know, we do own a little bit of U.S. just just because. But uh, in general, you know, we're we're more observers of that space and you know, interested to see what happens. But um, yeah, it's it's not really a, a, as big of a focus for us. 
we're discussing some of this in our upcoming letter. And when you have a company in the U.S. that has, you know, a three, four hundred million market cap, and they say that they need to raise 15 million to bring this on in six months or whatever it may be, that's a relatively simple hurdle to get over here. And I think some of the companies too, some of them have cashed up a little bit prior, you know, some are okay on cash position, but it is overall surprising that, you know, a lot of these equities haven't come out and done more raising. And then I think on the smaller quantity production, I think one of the things to prove out to potential future term contracts, Brian, is for some of these companies who say it's relatively easy to restart an ISR operation, go ahead maybe and do it here because, you know, stacking pounds away at this point probably makes some sense. That's not a problem if for some reason the, the price temporarily jumps back down to 32 bucks for a time. We know that's not going to hang out that long. But to demonstrate to utilities and potential clients in the future that, hey, look, we are producing pounds. Yeah, it's only 60,000 pounds a month, but we are producing. And maybe if you're a U.S. utility, you might have some, it's not an obligation at this point to do buy American, but maybe there is some kind of ethical part of that to say, you know what, we should probably source some pounds locally for the farmer's market style. I think that's also a way to look at it too, is to demonstrate that, look, you know, you don't know who we are, but we're actually producing and here we are now and, and we're showing that we can put cake in a can, which I think is going to be a big challenge here for a lot of these companies. Well, and you, and you you said it. I mean, some of these guys have their market caps now are 300 or 400 million. So to raise 20 million bucks, you're only talking about, you know, five to 10% dilution. Um, go back a couple of years, that was their whole market cap, right? I mean, some of these, some of these stocks have gone up tenfold in the last 18 months. And so now's the time. I mean, unless you think, going back to what we were talking about earlier, that, that they think, well, maybe their market cap goes to 600 million. I don't know. But yeah, if you want to start, start. Uh, I guess that would be our our idea. Um, that's why it's so interesting to, to see them uh, pausing here, but maybe everyone's just been taken so much by shock with how, how fast and uh, the move has been here that uh, you've got kind of people waiting and seeing uh, what's going to happen next. You know, Sprott still has whatever it is, 600 million or so left in their, in their ATM. I mean, they've, uh, they've made a big splash in this market. Maybe they think if that thing gets exhausted in the next month or two, um, you know, we could be sitting at, at 60 or $80 spot and all of a sudden their stocks have doubled again. And, you know, now that dilution is only a couple percent. So I don't know. I mean, you'd have to really talk to the company on a case by case basis to see what their, what their thought process is. You know, for us, we follow fewer companies these days. We, you know, we've talked about it going back a few years that when we started this thing and everything was, was really washed out, we took more of a basket approach just because we thought everything was so beaten up that when this thing finally turns, you know, a, a lot of boats are going to rise, even the ones that have you know holes in them. Um, as the valuations have gotten better and better, we've, you know, you got to sharpen your pencil a little bit more. Uh, there's still room for the whole sector to run, but we've gotten a little bit more, we've gotten a little bit more concentrated just because we think that, okay, you know, whereas we were willing to expand our quality um, filter uh, just in the early days, as these things have gone up five or tenfold, you know, you buy a stock at one and now it's at eight, the risk reward's a little bit different. And so, you know, it might not be as big of a position if, if we even still own it. And it seems like there's new companies coming every day. I mean, I, you know, what's the, the sector? I don't know. There used to be only a few dozen. Now there's maybe 50, 60. It seems like a lot of the Aussie ones are coming out, you know, buying land out in the U.S. And so, it's hard to it's hard to keep track of, of of all the stuff doing stuff. I think over over time we've gotten a pretty clear picture of of who's got really high quality projects, um, who's got a clear path to production, and and we're really just kind of focusing there. And then as you mentioned, always keeping an eye uh, towards what are some of the next sorts of opportunities that have this this same dynamic. Because you know even though we we expect and have expected this this theme to play out over over several years it's possible that the timeline gets accelerated just because of the flood of capital that comes in. And so we are, we actually talk about this fairly often is, you know, what happens if, if, uh, you know, Sprott comes in and jacks it up to a hundred and, you know, short order, say end of the year, I don't know, or in the next 18 months, I mean, you might see the valuations on these things go crazy, throw in some of the, the Reddit crowd and, you know, you get, you get a perfect storm for some of these equities. Uh, you might get to the your expected three to five year valuation in you know three to five months or you know some some short period of time. Uh, what are we going to do in that scenario? So we we kind of you know constantly war game stuff like that and think about 
you know, what you've, you've talked about in your, in your stuff before exit strategy. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. I know, I know you watch the news and CNBC or whatnot. They talk about the, the Reddit crowd and all this stuff. I mean, th- those guys, yeah, maybe they've nibbled on it a bit. Maybe, you know, you saw a little bit of that earlier this year with, with like a name like Denison. Um, but in general, I think if you look at the volume, uh, the volumes that were traded in some of those meme stocks, I don't think we've even gotten close there. You are definitely seeing more um, chatter pick up in, in social media in, in mainstream news. And so I think the, the, the recipe is there whether that actually happens, we'll see. But but for us, I guess the 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 main takeaway would be what happens if this thing if the if the thesis plays out a lot faster than we expected. Um, you know, I I can say that having been in it for a few years, knowing that it's been much slower <laughs> than we would have wanted in in 2018 coming into this thing. But you know, that's one of those things where it takes uh you know takes years to be an overnight success it's all of a sudden happening all at once here. Uh, and so we'll see. I, I still think a lot of these things have a long way to go, um, yeah. but it, it's possible that the, the speed really picks up. Well, maybe this is a three different times trade, one on a frenzy, one on a market crash, broad market crash, and maybe one on fundamentals because you and I both know that bringing the price to $60 and it stays there for a day or two does not solve the problem. And that uh, chemical filling its order book and Kazataprom filling its order book and they capitalize all their projects that are restarts, still does not solve the problem. And so, you know, maybe there are those opportunities there where this happens uh, a couple different times because of different reasons. You and I both know that uh, keeping the uranium price at, uh, you know, 65 bucks and, and higher for a period of years might actually start to solve the problem when projects actually get built. There's some different ways to look at it. I agree with you. I think that there could be some potential here, trades a few different ways based on some different reasons. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about that. A lot of the research and work that we did on the uranium sector was done in the last few years. Um, You know, a lot of the work we do today is is actually on other areas, uh, trying to find what has the the next potential for that sort of setup um, so that when we do get to the point where we start harvesting, uh, we can start redeploying that stuff and, and, and keeping the fund evergreen. And, and also, you know, uh, the fund I manage is, is heavily focused in natural resources, but we also have a number of other funds that are that are more diversified. And so we're always looking for what's the next thing. Um, and that doesn't mean that we're uh, just about to abandon uranium. I mean, we we've still, it's, it's, our, it's our largest sector waiting by far. Um, and so I don't want to come off as, as sounding bearish, but at the same time, you know, if a frenzy does hit, we won't be afraid to, to you know, trim a little around the edges and, and maybe plant a few seeds in some other areas here. I don't think we're necessarily there yet. You've definitely seen valuations improve, but I think the way we've really handled that is by concentrating, you know, the cream rises to the top. You know, if you had something that you were a little bit questioned about, but you think, oh, hey, it fits in the portfolio. Well, the stock went up five or 10 times. Well, you know, now <laughs> it's a little bit more of a show me story. Uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll add to something where you know the valuation is much stronger or uh, you know gives it a much stronger foundation. And in the meantime, if there's a little bit extra left over, uh, maybe we'll start seeding some of these other areas. And you know we get pretty steady flows into some of these funds, so there's that that we can use as well. So we don't necessarily have to trim. It's almost like a pseudo trim when you have money come in because it dilutes the value of uh, of all the all the positions slightly, and then you have some cash and you can decide where you want to deploy it. Well. You know, if if relatively some of the stocks in, in a certain sector have run 100 percent, you know, two months, well, maybe you might want to buy a little something else um, uh, and, and build those positions, something that hasn't quite worked yet, but you think still has a very good potential. So, yeah, there is there is portfolio management that takes place around the edges. But in general, we have some very large core positions and, and some names that are probably familiar with a lot of your listeners. And, you know, I think the hardest thing to do is, is to just let them go. Uh, there's always a tendency to want to do something, whether it's, oh, my gosh, you know, stock's up 10 percent. You know, should we sell it or it's down? You know, what's going on? I think we've gotten pretty habituated to the volatility in the sector, just ha- having ridden it both ways. And so probably the best thing to do is, you know, shut off the screen sometimes and just say, look, fundamentals are, are getting stronger and stronger. Valuations aren't necessarily close to where we think they have to go. So try not to be whipsawed too much by what the actual stocks are doing and let it go. 
Brian, I want to come back to the company size and also the thought process behind coming down the food chain here as certain things get loved and other things don't get so much love in the sector. But you're part of a fund. Uh, you speak to other institutionals in the U.S. and globally. Do you hear anything from them talking about uranium? Maybe there's some other funds that are in uranium that talk to you. What's the thought process on uranium? Is it pretty much crickets out there or, or is there other places that people are also looking that's been discussed? I guess there's two ways to answer that. One, um, there are definitely new people looking at uranium. I think if you went back a few years, it was a lot of uh, sector specialist guys that were launching funds just for it, or maybe there were some commodity guys that were also starting to look at it, some of the metals guys. The the big shift is seeing a lot more retail participation and, and also seeing a lot more generalist. Uh, I think that's been the real big one is, is you have had institutional investors um you know it, it kind of creeps it goes from the, the specialists to the guys that have commodity funds and then it goes to the guys that are looking at energy um but more and more you're seeing some institutions start to start to look at uranium and you know giving us a call because obviously we we're a pretty big holder of a lot of these names and so people reach out to us all the time um but I guess the other way to answer that question is there are other areas that people are looking at I mean you mentioned a few of them earlier in the call uh natural resources just looks like a fantastic place to be and you know we can go down the list of of why that is i mean it's hard to imagine a better environment for for commodities and raw materials you know we used to tell people you know pull out the periodic table i mean if you want to see what, what we're looking at for investments i mean it, and now that used to sound kind of bizarre but now i mean some of these some of these metals that people are talking about i mean they are really going deep in the weeds here finding some niche some niche stuff. I mean, we, we mentioned tin in our last letter. That's one that's, you know, got a lot of people talking about. There's a real squeeze going on there. Um, you know, go down the list. You, you mentioned copper. I, I think that all of these these raw materials that people need uh, in an inflationary environment are, are, are going to be an incredible store of value. And, and, and we think a, a good place to be invested. Um, as long as you find the companies that, you know, can actually produce it, they, they produce it at a, at a decent cost and, and they have some scale. I think that's kind of the, the thing that we're looking for. And so, you know, I, you made a good point earlier, which is that it's hard to, it's hard to really invest in everything. I mean, we got guys pitching us all kinds of stuff, helium and, you know, go, I can't even pronounce some of these things, but it's, it's difficult because yeah, you, you, you want to invest in everything, but you gotta, you gotta pick and choose. You gotta kind of force rank these things you know, because they're going to compete for your for your investment dollars. And so for us, I think when we're looking across the, the natural resource sector, I mean, one of the natural things to do, I, I'm mostly focused on the metal side. I know, you know, I was an oil and gas guy once upon a time. Um, and it, it's it's great to see what's what's happening there. Maybe, maybe not. It's all it's all the anti ESG things that are working right now with this, with this whole energy crisis going on. But I'm mostly focused on the metals because I think we've talked about it in the past, but this whole clean energy transition is, is really depends on a lot of metals. I mean, that's one of the things we, we spend a lot of time, you know, listening to these Senate hearings and reading these, you know, agency reports and you know, all of these energy, uh, these energy hearings, they talk about mining the whole time because, you know, it's batteries, it's solar panels, it's all this stuff that's needed for this whole uh, green, clean transition. I mean, it's all, it's just a huge step change demand for metals. And so for us, we look out and there's all these different areas that, that people are, are you know, scrambling for attention, whether it lithium or cobalt or nickel or whatever it is. You know, I, I think the way we've sort of approached it is to say, look, all of these individual markets have their own supply demand characteristics. What does that future supply demand look like? Which ones are tight? Which ones are not so tight? And knowing who has the tightest supply demand probably gives you a good area uh, to start with. And then once you have found that's the commodity you want to focus on, then you kind of go down the list. Okay, who's got the supply that can be brought online? You know, where are the where are the big low cost? Who are the who are the you know next gens of of X Y Z commodity? Um, and and then you can start doing your doing your work there. And so I think that's one way we've 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 found some of our investments and in, and in how we've approached looking at some of the new investment ideas that that are starting to make their way into our portfolio is 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 that sort of framework of saying you know which which commodities are really seeing a step change in demand that's going to have a hard time for supply to catch up? And then who's got the great source of supply that can actually get built and meet that? Lots of parts and there's just not enough hours in the day and there's not enough capital to kiss all the girls or if you're a woman listener, kiss all the guys. 
it's tough. And then you throw the great plague into things, Brian, and you've got uh, you've got a lot of disruptions that are happening. And also just the sheer time to really dig down and do a uranium-like analysis like you have and like I have and some other key founders of this cycle going back to 2016, 17, 18. You know, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. And of course, we all have daily lives as well, which uh, eats into that time frame. But yeah, in general, energy, natural resource areas are going to be pretty well liked here. And I think you have to pick your profiles that make the most sense, as you indicated, and and also pick ones that uh, you think can outperform some of the others. So if, if you see things like copper and silver and things like uranium might outperform oil and gas, then obviously you're going to allocate more towards those over oil and gas. You know, back to the you know, company size back in the uranium sector, we've got uh, NextGen's that a third of Cameco's market cap. You know, Denison's about half of NextGen here in terms of market cap. Paladin's about two-thirds of NextGen in terms of market cap. Just for reference here, these companies are getting into the billion, two billion, three billion plus areas. What's your thoughts on moving down the food chain and adding to positions that you might have that are already in place that are maybe a sub-billion market cap? Do you think that that makes some sense as things continue to roll here, or do you stick with some of the larger ones? I mean, you know, if you're a company like uh, Paladin, for example, you've got to be asking yourself, boy, how do we maintain this market cap? How do we grow our market cap? I mean, what do we do here to keep this market cap? Got to be some questions some of these companies are trying to figure out here as, as to what their strategy is, if they even have one at all. Yeah, well, we, I mean, I, I think we're less concerned about just market cap in an absolute sense. And, and the way we approach it is to say, well, what are these, uh, you know, pro go project by project. What is this project worth at, you know, X price, Y price, Z price? Give them just the mine life. Give them, you know, a longer mine life. What do we think is going to happen? You know, you, we run all these sensitivities. Uh, and then we say, what's, what's the kind of a good valuation range for this? Some of the larger companies might do just as well as some of the smaller ones, especially because it looks like some of the smaller ones have, have maybe outperformed. You know, you mentioned Paladin. That's been a huge, uh, you know, what was it, three cents a year and a half ago. So, yeah, I, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. I don't think you can just say, well, I, I don't like NextGen anymore because it's, you know, three or four billion. I, I want to go to, you know, whatever little tiny company because it's, it's very small. You got to go by by what's the project. And that, that's why I said, I mean, we, we might have been willing to do that, you know, a year or two ago when we owned a bunch more companies, just because we said, look, everything is so, is so small. And any sort of capital flowing into this thing is, is going gonna, is gonna to boost these things up. But, but as you, as we've gotten bigger and some of these things have gone up five or 10 times, well, now you have to, you have to scrutinize them a little bit more and say, well, wait a minute, is this, is this valuation really justified? Um, and look, we're not we're not to the point here where we're saying no, we need to go short everything. I mean, I still think it's it, valuations are going to get to places that are just as crazy on the upside as they were on the downside. Um, you know, and then for us, it's just a matter of preference of you know how much we want to participate um, and, and how long we want to stay at the table uh, while these things start going crazy. Because we, you know, the more and more we think about it, the more and more we do think that you probably get an overshoot on on the price uranium price just because of the lead times for some of these projects. I mean, you know, once once the utilities cry uncle and say, okay, we'll, we'll pay what we need to pay, well, great. All right, now we'll start, you know, raising the capital and building the mine and hopefully we have the permits and, you know, that stuff takes years. So that, that's how I think you get an overshoot scenario and, and why had you talked to, you know, you talked to the industry observers a couple of years ago, they said, look, this thing should have already started taking place. The fact that it hasn't and it's been delayed for so long just, you know, gives more fuel that fire that eventually you, you may have an overshoot to the upside. Um, so we think about it that way. But no, I, I don't think we're necessarily trying to target a specific market cap. I mean, if anything, uh, I would maybe say the, the well, the, the average market cap has gotten bigger and, and not just because of all the stocks have gone up, but because we've become more concentrated. And I think some of the bigger names are, 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 are the, are going to be some of the biggest winners. Um, we really like NextGen. We really like Kazadamprom. I think that's probably the best developer and the best producer that's out there. I mean, you can just do some napkin math on, on both of those and, and see that they should probably be worth a lot more, especially if you're optimistic about where the uranium price, I mean, if you're not, even if you're not optimistic about where the uranium price is going, if it's at 50 or 70, even, you know, these guys are going to make a ton of money here. 
I think it's more difficult as you go down the food chain because then you have to really start to question, are these things going to become projects? The reason that they're probably smaller is they either have smaller projects and then maybe they're appropriately valued or people are kind of just trading them like trading sardines and saying maybe they continue to go up and everything gets swept up. But in general, no, I mean, uh, we've kind of, we haven't really targeted a certain size factor. I think that we're just looking on a case by case basis. And really where we, where we've decided is to say, look, rather than add another name just because we're trying to get a tiny one, well, maybe, maybe we want to add another, another sector or not another sector, like another, another metal. Maybe, maybe we want to buy some, some tin. Maybe we want to buy some silver or some nickel or whatever the hell it is, copper. That's kind of the way we've approached it is saying, look, if we think that, these stocks have gone up so much that all of a sudden the risk reward is now not as attractive and it's going to force our hand to find something else. Well, maybe some of the other things we're looking at have a similar risk reward as these things did when they, before they had gone up so much. So I think that's probably the, the way we look at it. I mean, we do have a few of the, the smaller ones, but in general, no, it's, we're, we're less concerned about the absolute size and more just about what is the upside from the current price. No, good points. I think you have to look at some of these on an individual basis. Uh, and in this market conditions, uh, some of this conventional metrics get thrown out, as you know, and that eventually the market does come back to fundamentals at some point and discounting out projects that may not cash flow for seven years or eight years or whatever it may be and the CapEx involvement and then also the, the discount for management. What is that discount and the capabilities of a management team to bring something on or doesn't need to go to somebody else. Uh, the complexity of these projects, I think you have to do some extra work here and really look at them on an individual basis first. How about uh, shorting natural resource stocks? Given where we are in the cycle across the board, when a lot of the things we've talked about here, do you feel it's worth your time to try to short natural resource stocks in this cycle when it only means that you might make 50%? What's uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, that's I know there's probably some guys that have to do it as, as part of their mandate. It just It's just playing with fire for us. I mean, it's, it's the pennies in front of the steamroller. We don't um, – look. there's a couple ways to think about it. One, I think we always get a little nervous. Uh, I guess this is how you're wired when you're a resource investor. We always get a little nervous when things are going right. Because <laughs> we're so used to buying something and having it you know, lose half its value in, in the first six months that – when you actually start doing really well, you, you start saying, well, wait a minute, you know, how do I, how do I get blown up here? Um, so we're always looking to, to potentially hedge somehow or to protect either our gains or to protect against the downside. I mean, as, as you've seen, these things can turn on a dime. I mean, just look at the uranium sector over the last, I don't know, four to six months. I mean, they peaked out in June and they crashed through August and fired them back up through September. And then there was a couple of days they just got destroyed. So you really get whipped around here we're not necessarily trying to protect against that sort of volatility. I think the, the bigger concern we have is, is an overall market uh, crash. You know, I think it's nice uh, having all these investments that, that benefit from this crazy inflation that we're seeing. But at some point, you imagine that uh, the inflation is going to bite and, and, and might put a real uh, damp on, uh, you know, crimp the economy pretty badly. And if that's the case, uh, well, what, what's going to happen to the overall market? And if the overall market goes, I mean, you, no, nobody's really going to get spared. And so I think from a, from a hedging perspective, we've been more of the mind to protect against an overall market disruption. And so, you know, most of our hedges are sort of tail hedges just because it's been a painful 10 years to try to be cautious at all, uh, <laughs> as you've probably seen. I mean, it just hasn't really been rewarding to to be short anything. Um, I mean, there's been, there's been pockets of opportunity there, but in general, I think valuations have, the fact that the central banks have essentially taken over the market, uh, it just, it's very difficult to do valuation-based shorts for, in any sector. I mean, you've seen just craziness go on, um, especially in certain pockets of tech and, you know, some of these things where, you know, that we've long since gone to pass earnings multiples. Now it's sales multiples and, and the sales multiples are crazy now. And, you know, people are jumping through hoops trying to justify the valuation. Oh, well, maybe if you, you know, flip the 10 year, then that gets you, you know, an 80% or 80 times multiple or, you know, the, the, the justification that's going on or rationalization for this market, that's just, you know, being, have, having money pumped into it. What's, what's the Fed doing? 120 uh, billion a month. 
I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, and then the fact that anytime it, you know, goes down a, a percent or two, everyone starts to freak out like it's the end of the world. Um, that's an environment where we get a little concerned that maybe there's more fragility than people are, are owning up to. And so, I don't know. Yeah, we want to we want to protect against the downside in case the inflation that we're seeing in the natural resources does cause more of a of a widespread disruption um, and kind of you know bring down a lot of a lot of other areas. At the same time, we don't want to step in front of a moving train. I think that's been the that's been the difficulty is, you know, when everything's running so well, you say, well, how do I protect against it from changing? But I think given the, what what I was just talking about which is that you know a lot of the shorts in our view and this has been the, the case for a few years we think that shorting um a lot of individual names even though they're at crazy you know nosebleed levels is, is more of a market call than an individual company call and so you really have to be making the statement that ah, i think that you know the market's going to crash because yeah uh, something that's trading at a crazy valuation might get even crazier and so how are you going to protect against you know the, the pain that you're going to endure before you're waiting for for the thing to turn so i don't know it's a, a long-winded way to say no we're not really shorting natural resource stocks here we are more short uh either short or we'll have you know put options on on just kind of more uh, general market areas or, or or specific areas within the market that we think are extremely overvalued where if this thing ever does stop uh if the fed ever does you know kind of let the thing correct um they'll probably be the most affected i think that the you know yes in a in a general market correction the natural resource stocks will probably get hit along with everything else but they actually have strong fundamentals that are driving this and so you know it's always hard to to be short something that actually has a reason to go up versus something that is just has been propped up by you know 10 years of central bank profligacy and just waiting for that for that bubble to pop so we've we've lost money on our hedges i think everyone you know the, the, the joke about you know when at the end of the year if you have fire insurance are you, are you upset that your house didn't burn down i think no it's just kind of a necessary evil that you gotta you gotta protect yourself against uh, the downside but we're real, really only concerned about protecting against big downside i think if the market were to drop five or ten percent i mean we're not we're not too concerned about that that's the reason to find areas that do go up a lot when they work is it gives you a little bit more cushion to endure some of that just normal volatility. Yeah, I agree with most of your points. I, you know, we consistently lose money on insurance type hedges. I think there is some hedge built into natural resource sector. Not initially, of course, as you know, uh, everything gets cleaned out. So that makes sense to come back and look at some of the insurance options that are available to the broad market. And then I think, uh, as you know as well, that uh, at the end of the day, that initial washout, that really being in cash is is a nice place to be parked, to selectively deploy opp opportunistically in, in the various areas, whether it's physical metals, whether it's picking at natural resource stocks when they sell off, et cetera. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think if you have a, a blended approach to natural resource stock portfolio, plus cash, plus some optionality in terms of insurance on the downside for the broad market. I think that's a pretty good area to look at it. For us, I just can't get on board with trying to short any natural resource stock, especially a junior, in an uptrend that's that's generally sector-wide. And it's, it's really tough to do that, um, even if it's a joke, even if you know it's it's a joke and it, and it proves itself up to be a joke. Uh, it's it's just not worth the time and effort, especially if you know you can only scrape 50 to 75 percent. Why would you do that? I mean, you easily go long in, in some of these juniors and recoup many multiples of that, Brian, for less effort. Well, similarly, I, I think for us, even if we think a, a stock is, is or a company is not that good, um, if it, you're in the middle of it or the beginning stages of a mania we don't want to be short we'll avoid it if we don't like it and and just concentrate in, in the ones that we do like but yeah I, I think there's a lot of blow-up potential to be shorting i mean look look at some of the performance of these stocks over the last you know 12 months. i mean some of these things are up five or ten times so if you're short it you know they might they might have been a you know a, a poor company in your opinion 12 months ago and you say, I'm going to short it. And, and you know, you, you, you can get blown up doing that for, it just seems like the risk reward is skewed. I'd rather just, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Just avoid it. Don't own it. Uh, you don't, no one's forcing you to own any of these stocks. So find the ones you like and, and, and go along there. 
Um, you know, but I, I think some people might have the obligation to shore. Maybe that's part of their mandate or, or whatever it is. I, I don't know. Uh, for us, we have a pretty broad mandate. We choose to, to have protection just because like we've, we've just been talking about. But in general, it's some of these things where we think that um, we're really only concerned if something breaks in a major way. Um, I, I think we've gotten really used to pretty pretty wild volatility here so that doesn't that doesn't bother us that much kind of your normal course thing but but if something really breaks we want to have some protection there the other thing that really helps us you mentioned cash is you know the way we structured these funds is we didn't go out and raise you know the whole amount at once and then you know plant the flag in the sand and say here we go you know it's off to the races you know we we launched small and we've been steadily raising over time and we and we, we still are we still have you know money coming in pretty frequently so that helps us, um, you know, take advantage of opportunities like that and these sort of short-term dislocations in the market as you have some money coming in and you're able to deploy it. Um, you know, and then on the, on the flip side, like I said, we have some core positions, but we might, you know, trim around it just for, for portfolio management's sake. And so if something gets really out of line, you know, something runs a lot in a, in a very short period of time, you know, we might rebalance it back to what we think is appropriate and, and that might free up some cash. But in general, I, I think the we just want to kind of, you know, pick what we think are going to be the winners and, 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 and let them win. And then uh, in the meantime, we'll have some protection on the side and, and we'll see what to do with, with the cash. But, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's the way we've, we've approached shorting it. Everyone's going to have a different way they go about it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways to play this game. So um, not necessarily saying one is, one is better or worse. I'm just saying what we're doing. And, you know, there's there's a couple successful, they've kind of disappeared recently, but there's a few successful uh, short sellers out there that target, you know, small juniors that uh, come out with these, you know, short into short campaigns that work for a while anyway. But uh, I think you're right. I, I don't think you need to pick up pennies in front of a, a steamroller on this one, um, especially in this junior sector. And yeah, I mean, some of the performances, uh, even in the companies that are the crappiest, um, is substantial here. I mean, just looking back, if you just cherry pick um, some of these best performers going back to their absolute lows uh, for the cycle, I mean, there's some stocks that are three, four, five thousand percent gainers in uranium space from their bottoms for this cycle. So, and then also from the comment you made about cash. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's like, you know, the funds that have demand, new clients, and you guys are, you know, taking new clients, that's a, a beautiful conduit for additional capital. If you're taking new clients and you have demand for your fund, which isn't always the case, as you probably know, Brian, it's kind of like equated to a, an individual investor or a family office that has you know, income where they're able to still stack away half of that income uh, towards their portfolio every month or every quarter or whatever it may be. It's just nice to see that extra cash coming in to help shore up the portfolio because I think that that continues to be such an important component of any portfolio. How about carbon credits, carbon market? Any thoughts on, you on know, this trend? Yeah, I mean, we've had a couple guys we've talked to about it over the over the last year or two. It's gotten a little bit more popular. We haven't done anything there. Um, just kind of getting up to up to speed on. We've, we've we've looked at it a little bit. I guess it goes back to what we were talking about. Is you know you. you you can't buy everything as much as you'd want to. I, I, you know, it, it's tough when you do all this work on a sector and it starts working and you know it's got a lot of upside, but then you've got all these other opportunities that are calling your attention. And, oh, man, should we, you know, maybe sell some of this to buy this or, or that? And, you, you know, you, the, the, the FOMO kicks in and you, and you want to own all this stuff. I think um, it's an interesting development because if you do start having a, a carbon price, that gets, starts to bite a little bit. I mean, I think it definitely makes nuclear power look better. So um, as much as I don't really like taxes, you know, I, I think that's an interesting development there where you're going to actually start penalizing some of these sources for the, the emissions that they do. I mean, they, you know, everyone talks about nuclear waste, but, um, you know, pollution is a form of, of fossil fuel waste. It just gets kind of, you know, shoved into the atmosphere. So no one really cares about it, but this might be a way to, to offset that and, no, we don't. We we haven't really done anything there on, on the investment side, but we're aware of it, and you know, it's probably something we should we should look at a little closer. Yeah, pretty interesting trend on that front, and the nuclear power component of that should be a uh, huge, huge uh, unbalanced uh, credit in favor of nuclear power on that front. Um, Brian, we probably should wrap it up here. I think we've been talking long enough, but uh, 
anything on the front as far as if you guys are open, if the fund is open to new clients, can you just speak broadly to the, some of the requirements if you guys are taking new clients today? Yeah. So the fund that I manage is a partnership. Uh, it's available to accredited investors. We have a couple other partnerships. Uh, typically, our, our long short stuff is is in that form and it's available to accredited investors. We do have, we manage some long only, um, uh, some SMAs that I think, um, is, is more broadly available. So you can always just reach out to us. Um, our guys are happy to, to, to walk you through it. And you know, like we're always, we're always just happy to talk in, in general. I mean, we, you know, people call us all the time to kind of pick our brain about stuff. So, um, yeah, I think that the partnerships have a little bit more of a hurdle to participate in. Um, but you know, our long onlys, they're a little bit more diversified, but they still own a lot of this stuff. I mean, they're, they're still pretty heavy in, in natural resources. Um, you know, and then we, we have a, a smattering of other names that we've done a lot of work on, you know, people that if you follow, um, my partner, he, he covers a lot of that stuff. You can see on his, on his Twitter, he goes over a lot of the names. So yeah, just give us a call in general. I mean, I think we're, we have availability for, for most types of people, but for the, for the partnerships, I think it's, it's a little bit more restrictive. Brian, and what's the best way for interested parties to contact you? Me personally, I think you can just go on our website and reach out that way. Also, you can, I have a Twitter, you can follow, I'm not that active on it, but I'll, you know, we'll, we'll post stuff anytime we have stuff to post so they can, they can reach out to me on there or just reach out. There's a contact form on there. There's a phone number, you know, we're actually, we're a pretty small firm. We actually answer the phone. So just reach out. Happy to talk. Well, Brian, really appreciate it. It's always fun chatting the markets here. I appreciate you taking the time and best of luck in the uh, the coming quarters ahead, sir. All right. Thanks, Andrew.